and welcome back to The Ties That Find. On November 30th, 2010, an owner of a rare bookstore was discovered brutally murdered. 20 years later, a suspect is arrested. This is the case of Sherry Black. Hello and welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back again. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just want to take a moment to tell you I appreciate you coming back. And it would be really helpful for the show if you would rate and review and share. Share in your daily life if you have people that you have conversations with about true crime. And then, of course, also share on the socials. It really would help the show out. And I, I just want to be able to grow it and to get more of a, a broader audience. I have decided to add an extra segment at the end of the show to highlight an unsolved murder or other kind of crime that is um, still being investigated to this day that is local to the case in question for the week. So you'll be able to to get that at the end of the show. It's not going to be that long, maybe like five, five seven minutes, um, but I do expect to be able to do this every week going forward. Today we are in Sandy, Utah. This is... Um, it's a it's a pretty big city in the state of Utah. It's not as big as Salt Lake, but it's kind of in the outskirts of Salt Lake. But this is from back in 2010. This is a, a, a loved woman and grandmother, and I think it's a really interesting case. And it's really sad, and it's, it's just horrible, and, and her husband had to find her. So I do want to point out two specific sources that were really helpful in the research. One was from the, the family themselves. It is um, www.sherryblackinfo.com. It does give us a lot of information about her life as a as a mother and and wife, and then also you can see some good, really great, heartwarming family photographs. Um, you can also just get a whole bunch of links for all the investigation that took place throughout the years. So um, there's that, and then there's also True Crime Daily. True Crime Daily did a few um, videos or episodes with this, and. Elizabeth Smart actually was the commentator on it. So that was interesting. I didn't know that she had been hooked up with them, but she interviewed some of the law enforcement. She interviewed the family. Those are some really great sources that that helped me in the research of this case. And so with that, well, let's get into it. So here we are in Sandy, Utah. Sandy is the sixth largest city in the state of Utah. It's about 20 minutes south from Salt Lake, and it has about 87,000 people. This is the home of the Real Lake soccer team, a professional soccer team, and their stadium is the Rio Tinto Stadium. And now Sherry Wakasey Black was born on October 14th of 1946. She was born to Cecil Wakasey, and her mom was Verda Park. Cecil and Verda had three kids, Jim, Sherry, and Debbie. Eventually, the parents did divorce, and they both ended up remarrying. Now, Sherry grew up in Orem, Utah, which was just south of Sandy and even more south of Salt Lake City. She loved animals. She loved reading, and her parents actually owned a bowling alley, and she took a big liking to bowling, too. Sherry participated in a lot of bowling leagues when she was growing up, and sh this included a lot of traveling leagues. So, you know, I guess kind of like baseball teams would go from one high school to the next to play. They would do the same thing with bowling. Now, this is going to inform a lot of her life as the area that she grew up in is full of lots of empty land and mountains. 
Um, and so the, I think this was a really great opportunity for her to get to see different parts of the state and then also branching out into other states too. And she's also going to meet Earl Black. They meet while they're bowling together on a league and they're going to get married in April of 1965 when Sherry is just 19 years old. Now, this, of course, is common for most families back in the day uh, to marry as soon as you're out of high school. And it really worked out well for Sherry and Earl as they had a really wonderful relationship going forward. And they would end up with two children, Jason and Heidi. And while the kids were growing up, Sherry would work at, a lo- at the local zoo as an educator for the public and for the zoo staff. In 1989, tragedy struck the family when Jason, just 18 years old, would die from an, ac- an accidental gunshot wound. Now, when daughter Heidi grew up, she would end up marrying the CEO of the Utah Jazz basketball team, Greg Miller. And from what I could tell, they ended up with six children themselves, making Sherry and Earl grandparents to six beautiful grandchildren. And when Sherry is murdered in 2010, her and Earl would have welcomed their first great-grandchild to the family and were expecting number two. As time passed, Sherry would turn her early childhood love of books into money. She had started really diving into like rare books and old books, and those that were especially from the LDS or Mormon religion. Now, the LDS community, aside from producing absolutely gorgeous offspring, is a very faith-based community and has very strong ties like within the church community itself. Families often get together to socialize, whether they're in the church, in a church event, or if they're just meeting each other in church and then become friends and hang out outside of church. And now the pictures that I found on the Sherry Black Information website read just like a family album. Um, There are so many pictures to appreciate there. The family seems to really love to travel a lot, which is what I think Sherry and Earl got from when they were back in back in their bowling days. And there's like pictures of them in New York City. It looks like they're in like Walt Disney World or Walt Disneyland. Um, Photos just out in the country, in the wilderness. And all the time you just see Sherry and Earl like standing or sitting right next to each other. Just they're either smiling at the camera or they're just enjoying, you know, looking on at the grandkids and whatever the grandkids are doing. The grandkids in these photos um, from the website are they're in their teens and they're just goofing around like every other family would, right? Everybody's just enjoying each other. They do look like they are photos from like group events, not just the immediate family with with Heidi and and Greg and the grandkids. And the fact that Sherry um, would end up selling a lot of these LDS books, it makes me think that they that makes me think they have a lot of ties to the church, and that a lot of these photos might be on some church trips that they had with the local ward. Now, at a certain point, Sherry decides that she's going to actually just go ahead and sell some of these old-timey Mormon-type books that she's been collecting, and she starts an online business through Amazon. But soon enough, the house that they live on on Southeast, but soon enough, the house they live on on South 700 East um, just starts bursting at the seams. So Sherry and Earl decide that they're going to add a second building onto their property and open B&W Billiards and Books. Sherry is going to use this space as a rare bookstore, and then Earl would use it to repair pool tables for customers and also to resell them. Now, most of the time, the store wasn't like open like a regular business, like with regular business hours. This was more of a place that would hold the books and Sherry could make appointments with possible buyers. And without the public just coming in and coming out on a daily basis, she didn't really need to have a specific system in order for people to be able to find the books on the shelves, right? Because she's really selling them on online 
or people that are interested in rare books are calling her to ask if she has certain things. To ask if she has certain items. So because of this, she is able to have her own type of organization system. And over the course of time, she pretty much knows what kind of inventory that she has. So she doesn't necessarily have any kind of cataloging system going. She's not writing down on paper and pen or, or even in the computer. This is what I have. And this is where I have it in the store. And this is how much I'm trying to sell it for. A friend of theirs, Steve Wagner, who actually would go on regular rafting trips with them, would say, quote, they're the greatest people on the planet, both of them. They're modest people. They don't expect anything from their kids. They're happy, unquote. So here we find ourselves on the morning and early afternoon of November 30th, 2010. Earl goes out for the majority of the morning and early afternoon. He goes out to run some errands or do whatever he needs to do. And then he gets back home just before two o'clock. He doesn't find Sherry in the house. So he goes over next door to the bookstore and he walks in and he calls out for her. He calls her name. Hey, Sherry. But he doesn't hear anything back. And with the way, like I said, like there's so many books everywhere. The sacks are tall. There's tons of bookcases He's just kind of going up and down, you know, in throughout the floor plan of the store just to see if she can find his wife. And he ends up in the back room and he finds Sherry. She's on the floor. She's beaten and she's stabbed and she's bloody. He does call 911 and he tells the dispatcher right away that he knows that she's dead. At her autopsy, it's discovered that she had been beaten to death as well as stabbed in the chest and sexually assaulted. And to make it clear, she is believed to have been sexually assaulted after she had been killed. The local police department, um, South, uh, it's South Salt Lake Police Department, they start their investigation right away, of course. The only evidence that they find, aside from Sherry and the DNA evidence left on her, is a man's belt nearby. They don't think that the belt was used to assault her necessarily, but her husband tells us that it's not theirs, so it definitely shouldn't have been there that day. But police find no money taken out of the register, and because of the way Sherry keeps her books in the store, it's really unknown if any books were actually stolen. Police plead with the public to come forward with any information. They're looking for any kinds of reports of anyone seen entering or exiting the bookstore the morning of Sherry's killing. Now, as far as we know, the family has no enemies. They've got a lot of friends. They're a very tight family. Like I said, the photos from the website about her um, they show a lot of group get-togethers, and I'm really think so. I'm also thinking they're very socially active, probably in their church. So police ask themselves, well, could this be related to her rare books? Now, some of her books could fetch up to a couple thousand dollars, and this bookstore is pretty much by appointment only. So, did she have an appointment to meet someone, a possible buyer for one of these books this morning? I'm thinking, eh, books are not really the type of thing that people would kill for. I would think that you just want a book, you like a book, you fork over your money and you get it, right? It's not like these books have the secret to the Holy Grail or anything. This isn't like the Da Vinci Code that we're talking about here, right? Eh, wrong. Turns out people will steal anything if they have an avenue to turn it into a profit. And this is Mormon country and Sherry sells old pricey books about Mormon history. There's always going to be people who are looking into this type of stuff, not because of the virtues that the texts themselves look to teach, but because the book itself is actually worth something to someone else. Now, the South Salt Lake Police Department come up with an interesting lead when it comes to this. 
Sherry had worked with them in the past about her books. She had helped take down a book thief that she had actually bought books from. At the time, she bought them. She didn't know that the books were stolen, though, so she did end up selling some of them, unbeknownst to her that they were stolen. The son of the family had sold them to her, but it was his father who had, like, the possession of a lot of them, and some of them were worth actually thousands. So police are investigating this book theft that comes into their precincts, and then they start tracking down some of the books on the sheet, and they ended up with Sherry. She says, of course, she had no idea that they were stolen. She just bought books off this guy for her business and then turned a profit on a few of them. And then Sherry ends up offering her testimony in the DA's prosecution against the family. And now, here in 2010, after she's been killed, police are wondering if this could have been a revenge killing. So they do look into the family, they do a thorough you know, investigation with them, they do get some DNA testing done, and they end up ruling them out. And with no other tips or leads that come into the police department and no hits in the CODIS system, the case goes cold. Now, each year on the anniversary of Sherry's murder, husband Earl, daughter Heidi, and the rest of the family and many people from the town get together for a memorial service in Sherry's honor at the cemetery. In 2019, Heidi says, quote, It was the way she lived and the way she would listen without judging. She was always there to listen. She was always available for those she loved. I don't ever remember a time when she said, I can't, I don't have time. She would always push things aside for family. That and being independent, those were the greatest gifts that she gave me, unquote. By 2013, the Black family sold the bookstore and the house. And I think Earl actually moved out a little while, a while before that. But as far as the actual ownership of the property, that changes hands in 2013. They say it's just too painful for them to even be there associated with the property. In 2017, the Sherry Black Education Foundation is created. This foundation is started by Sherry's daughter, Heidi, and her husband, Greg, and its aim is to further educate law enforcement and all possible resources and avenues available in finding perpetrators of cold cases. Heidi tells us, quote, the mission of the Sherry Black Education Foundation is to enrich lives through the transfer of knowledge that will help solve crimes. My mother's murder remains unsolved. Greg and I have come to learn that more than 230,000 homicides committed between 1980 and 2014 also remain unsolved. The percentage of solved crimes that lead to an arrest has fallen considerably in the past 50 years. We want to do all that we can to end the pain that our family, as well as others, are suffering. We feel that helping to educate law enforcement and forensic professionals will allow us to do that, unquote. That's a tall order to put on yourself, but <laughs> um, that's great. I mean, it's 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 a horrible place to find yourself in when you have a crime that is committed against your family and your your mother, the person who gave you life, the person that taught you and nurtured you throughout your whole life has been ripped away from you. But at the same time, you're also now armed with the passion and a motivation to get more cases solved. How many of us have been spurned into public service in some shape or another because of our personal experiences? I mean, granted, I'm not doing this podcast because I had a family member that was murdered or a crime was committed against them. I don't have any Jane or John Doe's that turned out to be, you know, one of my f missing family members. But there at the same time, there are so many people out there that find their callings and for a cause because of something that happened directly in their own personal lives. 
And I really commend Heidi and Greg for doing this. And Greg does recognize that their family does have more resources than some other families in order to be able to get these kinds of crimes solved. So I think it's a really commendable action that they took in setting up this Sherry Black Education Foundation. This foundation is going to help multiple law enforcement agencies to better educate their officers and detectives, their forensics labs, and they're going to tighten up their databases. Anything that would come into play when trying to solve a homicide or a sexual attack. Over time, they've reached out to many different states also and have courses that they offer to police departments throughout the country. And it actually does help a number of cases get solved. I will put the link in the show notes. And at this point, they have raised $250,000 as a reward that leads to the arrest of the person that raped and murdered Sherry. In Sherry's case, of course, the police department is still trying to find leads and trying to come up with other kind of avenues to find out who did this. There are a lot of articles and blurbs in the news about the case throughout the years, but they never really get any leads that come in. They're not finding new evidence. They're not getting any kind of new names to look at. But this is where I think the family really comes into play to get this case solved and get some justice. They always say that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And we know that that is very true when it comes to solving crime. And aside from the fact that you're not able to get any kind of closure or resolution or send this, the piece of shit to jail that murdered your loved one or your friend, that person is actually out there living their life, just, you know, like footloose and fancy free. So the Millers and the Blacks have created the Sherry Black Web Info website, and they're giving interviews to local and national news organizations. They're starting an education foundation, and they're... they're you know, having their, their yearly memorial at her grave site, and they're just being overall very vocal about it. So if you don't have your loved one's story in the public, then how else do you get the public to start talking about the crime? And how will you ever get any kind of new leads? And on top of that, I think when we have a police department with multiple cold cases, which cases are they going to make a priority? I would just guess that it's human nature. The ones that are widely known in the area, right? So the public wants the cases solved that the public hears about. Which is not to say that the cold cases that aren't publicized are not worthy of being solved. But in the end, the police department does have to prioritize the files that they're going to pursue and how much they're going to pursue them. So later that year, Detective Ben Pender in the South Salt Lake Police Department um, announces that he has been working with Parabon and he holds a press conference outside of Sherry's bookstore on the anniversary of her murder. He reveals three different composites created by Parabon based on the DNA samples left at the scene. This is called the phenotyping, right? These are what would be the best guesses created digitally based on the genetic markers found in the DNA. One is of the perpetrator in his 20s, one is of him in his 30s, and then one would be in his 50s. All this time, the case has been with the South Salt Lake Police Department, but finally in 2018, they do officially turn it over to the Unified Police Department. But Detective Ben Pender still stays with the case, and he's also there transferred over to Unified. So Unified PD is like, it's like a mother department that's holding jurisdiction over multiple towns and townships in the Salt Lake County area, from what I could tell. I looked it up, and it has its own website. Um, it was established in 2009 as a way for a lot of towns in the county to kind of share their resources as their needs arise. The overall goal for all departments was um, working on efficiency and saving money. But one of the entities it encompasses is also the Salt Lake County as a whole. So it's a little confusing because the county would then supersede the town, I would guess. Like, for example, 
if you live in Mill Creek, which is another town in the county, if you want to talk to the Mill Creek PD since 2009, you're directed to go to the Unified Police Department. But what if you're not happy with them and what they're doing for you? So you want to talk to your county police department, like Salt Lake County. But that means you're still going to the Unified Police Department with your concern. Now, additionally, if the main reason that the local police departments got together was to share the resources that they have and therefore save money that way, then the UPD would still get to decide which which departments are going to, say, get the canine dogs or... For the forensics lab, which town's evidence loads are going to be getting a priority? You know, you don't see that from the outset, but in the practical day-to-day workings of, for for this instance, for the lab, essentially, like we just said, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So I, I don't know. Um, it seems to me that you would get the sheriff's office with the ultimate power to call the shots for the local police departments just by the way of being in charge of who gets what resources and when. I mean, that's my take on it, at least. I'm sure there's got to be some kinds of checks and balances that were put in place when the UPD was created. Um, but that's just my, the, the reaction that I get from there about Paige on the website. I could totally be wrong. <laughs> in any case, Detective Pender is hooked up with the Parabon in 2019 still. And at this point, they've they've been working on the genealogy family mapping investigation. They end up with a family and they check into them and they get to a possible suspect. Pender and his team get a sample from the suspect, and on October 10th, 2020, the Unified Police Department announces the arrest of Adam DeBurrow for the 2010 killing and sexual assault of Sherry Black. So who is Adam DeBarrow? Who is this piece of shit? We actually got a lot of information about him here. He was 19 at the time that Sherry was killed, and he had a lot going on before that time and kind of a lot after. So we'll start from when he was young. And just as I say that, I'm sure you understand there's going to be some kind of childhood trauma that he has. And he does, to an extent. We don't know all the details, but let's get started. When Adam was about 10 years old, his adoptive father, Joseph DeBurrow, was arrested and ended up pleading guilty to charges of child pornography and sexual abuse. They did live in and around the Sandy, Salt Lake, Orem area throughout all this time. Dad, Joseph DeBurrow, was a photographer and had created in 1999 a, quote, modeling agency out of a photography studio in his basement. Need I say more? The website his father created for this business boasts using his own daughters as models and offering photo services to other parents who wanted their children to get into modeling. So here are some of the things that I found on the on the business's website. Quote, okay, quote, all of our models are under the age of 14 and we have contracted both male and female models. We have a particularly good selection of ethnic models to work with. The Young Models resource began with John Paul advertising his daughter as a model. It expanded to include his daughter's friends and as word spread of what we were doing, many others, unquote. Gross. This is all happening in Orem, Utah, and it's about a half an hour south of Sandy, which is like we said, like about a half an hour south of Salt Lake. It's skeevy just reading the words because it's not said if this 
quote, modeling agency was able to actually get any kind of real type of modeling or acting gigs for the clients. I don't see any stories from a local parent being like, oh, yeah, you know, my daughter Deidre ended up getting a TV spot for a commercial for the car dealership or, you know, like the local penny saver, or local you know, print ads in the newspaper, like, oh, that was my son. Yeah. Then, and John Paul photography, you know, gave us, helped us get the headshots in order for my son to get this, this advertising gig. So I don't know. Yeah. Skeevy. It doesn't get any better though. So let's keep going. The Orem police department do think that this is gross too at the time. Um, and of course illegal because what's, what's, what's happening underneath the surface, um, they did think something was very fishy going on in that house, but they couldn't prove anything and there were no complaints official. There were no actual complaints that were coming in, so they had to sit on it. Now, cut to three years later in 2002, he after he opens his studio over in California, there's some kind of like child pornography conspiracy crackdown. And in those documents, Joseph DeBurrow is named as a supplier of child pornography. Oh, God. So of the course, the local police here in Utah, they're just going to they're going to go pick him up and they're going to question him, not just for themselves, but also for California. And now we have, the, you know, the FBI coming in. And it's not clear to me if the sexual abuse charges were stemmed from actual physical sexual abuse in the house or if this might have had to do with the clients that he had, because the parents said that um, it was like a legitimate business with all like contracts and stuff. And the parents were there when the photo shoots were taking place. I wonder if the, the sexual abuse had to do with the fact that um, eventually he would admit to concealing a camera in the changing room of the studio and then taking photos from that video footage and from the camera and selling them to buyers across the country. <sighs> Father Joseph DeBurrow would end up pleading guilty and he is sentenced to 10. OK, I'm going to read it and then we're going to break it down. He's sentenced to, quote, 10 years in prison on the federal charges, as well as two terms of one to 15 years in prison and three terms of three years to life in prison on the state charges, unquote. So I had to get a pencil and paper just to specifically write it down as a, as a math equation. What is that? That's possible 10 plus possible 15 plus possible 15 plus possible life plus possible life plus possible life. But he ends up getting out of jail in 2012. So he spends probably about less than 10 years in prison for this in the end for supplying pedophiles with jack-off material. Really? And what about the victims in this case? What about the children whose photos are floating around the country, around the world probably? Those kids and their parents don't just forget that after 10 years, that these photographs are in, still in the hands of pedophiles all over the world. Now, just because you sentenced this piece of shit for his crimes and he gets out of prison 10 years later, doesn't mean that the images are disappearing when he's getting out of jail. Ugh, unbelievable. So this is the type of environment that our resident piece of shit, Adam DeBurrow, is coming from. It's not known for sure, but we think that he was one of the foster or adoptive kids in the house at the time of his arrest. He was one of the adopted kids that were with the family. Police do not feel that mom knew anything about anything that, that her husband was doing with his business and the fact that he was selling child porn throughout the country. Um, so they decide that they're not going to take the kids from the house because they got dad out of the house as it is. 
psychologists will say that it's it could be just as traumatizing to for a kid to be taken from the home that they live in after something like this, especially if it's possible that you weren't abused yourself and the perpetrator had been already taken out of the house. DeBurrow is about 10 years old at the time that his father's arrested. And by the time he's 16 in 2006, he's going to be accused and convicted of sexually assaulting and the attempted rape of a female victim that's younger than 14 years old. And this is where his record begins. He will spend some time in the juvenile detention facility in Salt Lake. And by the time he's 19 in 2010, even though he no longer lives there, he's still under their watch. Now, I saw a report that said that he was ordered to offer his DNA from a saliva swab at this time when he got let out. But in the same sentence, it's still not sure if it was actually ever taken. But it must not have been because if that was the case, he would have been in the CODIS system and then Sherry Black's murder would have been solved and tied up right away. So now in October 2010, a month before Sherry was killed, he's hanging out in West Valley City, which is still the same general area as Sandy and Orem and Salt Lake. And he's cited for shoplifting from a grocery store, and he goes to court at the end of October for this, and the judge sentences him to two months in jail. But at the same time, he tells them that the sentence is suspended, which pretty much means he gets probation for a little bit. If you're good, you don't have to serve your time. But within the next month, he's breaking into Sherry's bookstore, attacking her, stabbing her, biting her, killing her, sexually assaulting her body. Now, we all know hindsight is twenty twenty, but if he had been forced to serve his time for this pickup for the shoplifting in October, Sherry could still be alive today. So we know that DeBurrow had never been on a suspect list or never suspected of any wrongdoing with regards to Sherry Black, and he goes about his life for the next few months. In mid-January of 2011, less than two months from Sherry's killing and three months from the original shoplifting, he is caught stealing again and again in West Valley City. He pleads guilty again, and this time he's going to be sentenced to 180 days in jail, which is about six months. And I just imagine that there are people that know about him in law enforcement, as well as have some kind of hand in the Sherry Black case. So here they are at a court hearing in February of 2011 being like, ah, that kid's a screw up. He just can't keep his hands to himself and keeps trying to lift things off of the shelves and not pay for them. This kid needs to get his act together. Now let me get back to this thing I'm working on for the Sherry Black murder case. Ugh, it's crazy. <sighs> so the court tells him to come back at the end of March to begin his six-month jail sentence, which he does, and he's let out in the fall of 2011. So for the original shoplifting from October of 2010, he's expected back in court again, but he doesn't go. So they issue a warrant for his arrest. And based on the address that he gave when he gets out of jail, he's living in Mill Creek, which is about a mile from Sherry's bookstore. It's believed that this address is the house of his birth mother. Now, we don't know the relationship that he's had with her over all this time. We don't know if he was a foster kid initially and then got adopted by the DeBurrows. But that's essentially what I found, the fact that he is in contact with her and that she does live about a mile from Sherry's bookstore. And it is discovered that this birth mother had lived in that apartment since before Sherry was killed. So he clearly had easy access to her and to that bookstore. Now for motive. Do we think this is sexually motivated, at least initially, or was it supposed to be at least, at least initially strictly a robbery? Did he have ties to any rare books or even have any clue as to how much they would fetch for? I'm assuming no, but he does like to lift things that don't belong to him. Do we think he went in to look around for something to lift and then she caught him and then there was a physical altercation and then, and then the sexual assault? 
Or do we think that it was his past history of the sexual assaults of the minor that prompted the visit? Uh, I don't know. If pressed, and this might not be a popular theory, but I'm wondering if the robbery was the initial reason for the visit, and then when he raped Sherry after she was already killed, was this an afterthought? I know it sounds crude, but what I'm getting at based on, a, based on his record is that he seemed more focused on the stealing than on sexual assault offenses at that time in his life. So let's just put that on hold for now, because now we have to get into his Facebook posts for the last eight years. Um, DeBurro makes an account sometime around 2011, and he calls himself Jace Ranting. Jace, like, from uh, who are the, the, the duck, who are the duck people? Duck Dynasty. And boy, does he like to rant. He's one of those people that post violent and threatening memes. Not the ones that we look at in the true crime community. These are the ones that are, like, essentially threatening to the reader, like, don't piss me off. And they're not cartoons or like commonly used photographs that just keep getting recycled and recycled into millions of memes that we all see. These are like dark sketches of bloody knives and faces and chainsaws and stuff. And even on the second anniversary of Sherry's murder, one of the posts that he, one of the memes that he posts is, quote, don't upset me. I'm running out of places to hide the bodies, unquote, piece of shit. (sighs) Throughout 2012, he's just spewing hate and hopelessness all over the place. I'm sure we've all had at least one person in our lives that do this, you know, but we know that, but from what we know, the people that we know have not done the things that he has done. Looking back though, I think it seems clear that he's often referencing either his father's crimes or Sherry's murder. And in keeping in mind that this is the year that his dad is let out of prison and he's really pissed off about it because his dad goes back to his house, his wife's house and Adam is pretty pissed that his wife took him back, claiming that she kicked out two of her disabled children in order for dad to be able to come back to the house. So here's just a few just to get you an idea of where his mindset is. Quote, enjoy life. You never know when it's their last day. Unquote. Quote, life is fucking retarded. I want the world to just leave me alone. Dying sounds easier than dealing with a lot of the people that make the life cesspool that it has become. I hate life, and it's never-ending tedious games that you have to learn to live. Quote, I want to hurt people who hurt me. I'm angry, and I can't believe in humanity. Here's one more. Quote, the world needs to start burning. I hope I hear the screams of people I've come to hate. My name isn't Adam DeBurro. I'm filled with rage, and I want to literally tear you fuckers who have hurt me apart. Unquote. No, you have a guilty conscience and repressed anger for whatever the hell happened to you when you were a kid. You should turn yourself in for what you did to Sherry and then ask for some fucking therapy is what I have to say. But in 2015, he might have started to calm down off of his tirades, but I don't know, maybe it's a little misguided. He tells us, quote, I'm not a good person, but I'm not a bad person. So I feel I'm doing just fine. No, you're a monster. You're turning your childhood into an excuse for whining on the internet, stealing, murdering, and raping a beloved 64-year-old grandmother and active member of the community. No, you're a really bad person. So where do we go from here? Well, long story short, he confessed in the interrogation room, but we are still pending trial. The last court date I found was in this last November, just a few months ago, what, five months now, six months now. And it's not clear what the official plea is, but I'm guessing it's not guilty because the guilty plea would have been announced and we would have expected some kind of sentencing hearing to have passed already. So we will see. 
I believe he is up for the possible death penalty, so that's possible why he may plea not guilty. And then the you know that would spur the that and then that would spur the DA to try to come up to come up with a plea, and then at least he'll be able to get the death penalty off the table. But rest assured, he is on my Google alerts. Do we think he could have been caught? Uh, I don't know. Given his history and the fact that DeBurrow is still ranting and raving about his sick and miserable life in 2012, I think it's possible. But another violent offense would have had to take place. He's 30 years old now, and even though it seems like he went off police radar in 2012, that doesn't mean that something wasn't going to happen in his life that would set him off again eventually. He had offenses in 2006, 2010, 2011, including Sherry's brutal murder. And those are the crimes that we know he committed because he's gotten caught. We don't know what we don't know about what else he's done and what else he's capable of. Because ultimately, if he's raping a woman after killing her, then I think that the only next step after that, as far as escalation goes, is dismembering and eating. So yeah, I have a feeling that even though he's been in an essentially dormant state criminal-wise, it's bound to come back up again if he wasn't incarcerated. So now thinking about the motive again, was he motivated by the sexual attack? What do you think? I mean, let's think about Winston Corbett from the James and Linda Miller episode, right? That kid was 16 when he attacked them. And yes, he did seem to not commit any other violent offenses in the years after that. But he also got himself educated in the act of killing when he was in the military. And how many other murderers do we know that took breaks in between? their victims, right? The NorCal rapist that we covered a few episodes ago, he waited six years at the end there between his attacks. So many other serial killers are out there that span decades. And if just because it's your first one doesn't mean you're going to hit the second one right after and right after and right after. As far as we know, the day he, Adam got, DeBurro got picked up, he could have been thinking, oh, I've got these feelings again. I got to get out and get out my rage, you know, act out on my rage soon or I'm going to blow my top or whatever. Who knows? So do we think that this piece of shit DeBurrow could have been susceptible to going down the dark path again in the future? Because remember, he's it's not like he's 65 years old now and he's telling us that he's been in therapy since the day after he killed Sherry. So yes, I do think that eventually he would have been caught, but I think it would have had to be because that he committed some other violent offense and ended up in the CODIS system. I wonder what you think, though. Do you think that he could have committed any other offense like this? Do you think he's done it in the past that he hasn't been caught for? Or do you think he might have done it in the future? I would like to start a conversation about these cases, about this ultimate question. Because I think the more often that we say no, the more that it validates the use of the genetic genealogy avenue. And like I said in the past, there are many states that have laws against the use of forensic genealogy because for whatever reason, they think that the privacy of the suspect is more important than finding the perpetrator of the crime in question. Now, I know there's a lot of ethical questions that are that are out there about this genealogy tool, but I do think a good portion of it was resolved by the fact that GenMatch changed their system to automatically opting everyone out for when they sign up and put their profile on them on, on the on the database and now having and now having people proactively opt themselves into law enforcement to see their profiles. Hashtag opt in. Our closing tribute comes from daughter Heidi Miller. This is a statement released by the family and I believe by Heidi herself after the arrest was announced. Quote, 
We are grateful to the South Salt Lake and the Unified Police Department and Detective Ben Pender for their ongoing investigative work and diligence that led to an arrest and charges in the murder of Sherry Black. We also appreciate the media for covering this case for the last 10 years, which allowed the public to share tips and new information. We especially want to thank our family and the community for their love, support, and prayers. While this 10-year period has been difficult, we have been able to find peace and comfort knowing other cases are being solved with the use of new forensic tools. We will continue to work through the Sherry Black Foundation using industry experts to educate law enforcement officers on the most current investigative techniques and also support advanced DNA testing and to help bring resolutions to victims' families, unquote. And that is the case of the 2010 killing of Sherry Black. So Adam DeBurrow is locked up in jail at this time, and we will see exactly how his trial pans out or if he um, officially will just give it up and plea. Now, what I wanted to do is start going over and giving brief overviews of other unsolved crimes that could possibly be solved by forensic genealogy. I thought it would be a good way to show not only the cases that are solved, like the course of this podcast, but just to illustrate how many unsolved murders or other crimes are out there throughout the years and, you know, just to bring more details to some of them that are unsolved that I think can be solved by forensic genealogy, given the right circumstances. And what I want to do is highlight a case um, each week at the end, you know, after the main story, a case from the the location or the area of the that we we're talking about that week. So this is going to be the murder of 18-year-old Valaine Briggs. And um, this was from May 10th, 1977. I'm just going to read the article from the newspaper. This is from the Ogden Standard Examiner in Ogden, Utah. And here we go. So this is one big, long quote. Authorities say they have, quote, a great many clues and hope to come up with a suspect soon in the death of Elaine Briggs, 18, of Salt Lake City, whose nude bound body was found in a rugged canyon area east of here. Salt Lake County Sheriff's Captain N.D. Hayward met for two hours Monday with Salt Lake City police, but declined to comment on what the leads might be. The victim's body was found by hikers Saturday near a stream about one quarter mile from the mouth of Lambs Canyon. Miss Briggs, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Jack Briggs of Dillon, Montana, failed to return to her Salt Lake City residence Thursday following a class at LDS Business College. Hayward said the victim had been sexually assaulted and was apparently strangled by a cord about one quarter inch in diameter. He said the woman's death apparently was unrelated to any other unsolved murders. Investigators said the body was found partially covered by a green plastic bag about 100 yards below a fire break in, on the canyon's east side. They said the woman was found with her wrists tied to her ankles with nylon hose and her feet tied together with a black belt. She, had been, she appeared to have been dragged through underbrush into the canyon area and her clothing and school books were scattered nearby, officers said. Hayward said it was thought that the young woman was killed elsewhere and the body then taken to the canyon. So, um, yeah, so that's just, um, and that's just from back in 1977. It's just, it's, it's horrible and it's horrific that this, of course, if we are notified of every single murder or found body that 
happened, oh my God, we would be overloaded. It would be horrible. Nobody would be listening to true crime podcasts or interested because it would just be one big, one big horror, horror story every single day. Well, for one thing, we know it's not Bundy. I thought, well, murder, 70s, Utah, maybe it's Bundy. No, he was, um, he was already in Colorado by then. I do hope at some point that, that they do find Valene's murderer. And I hope her family, just like Sherry's family, is able to get some kind of um, resolution or some kind of justice. Um, so this was the 70s. So it's possible that the, that the perpetrator is still alive, right? It's going on 50 years. So if the guy was 20, then he's, he'd be in his 70s now. So it's possible that he's still alive and he's out there. Or they, who knows? We don't know. In any case, I thank you very much again for coming back this week. And please, once again, rate, review, and follow. Please also share whenever whenever you get the chance. And I really appreciate any kind of interaction that we get on the, on the webs. You can find me at thetiesthatfind.com, I, where I post the photographs, the sources, and the scripts. And also Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And I hope everyone has a good week. And I will see you next week. Thanks. Bye.